0: This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. All right, well, uh, it is good to, for this to work tonight, like Dakota said we had some difficulties, but it 's really um, it 's good um, Thanks for being with us tonight We got these masks in, and I bought way too many of them. so if you would like one, come find an REO staff and we 've got plenty of masks um, well what we 're going to be doing this semester during this time is we 're going to be reading through the Sermon on the Mount together, what Ellis just read to us and The Sermon on the Mount is this sermon that Jesus preached that's recorded for us in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, and it's familiar to many of us. It's filled with familiar phrases. It's the best known of Jesus' teaching, but probably the least understood. And most people think that the Sermon on the Mount, Gandhi, Tolstoy included, um, they thought that this was this sublime teaching on how to live our lives as human beings. If we just follow this, then the world would be a better place. The central theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And this ties everything together. In the chapter right before this, um, Matthew records Jesus starting his public ministry. And when he begins his ministry, he announces and says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus was announcing that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, had arrived in his person. This present reality that was there and here in Jesus that we can experience here and now, even though we're still waiting for it to come in its fullness. And this is the context in which we need to see the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Jesus is showing us what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Not what we have to do to earn our way into the kingdom of God, but rather what happens to human lives and communities when they come underneath of God's gracious rule, when they come into submission to him as the king. So what happens then when lives and communities come underneath God's gracious rule? Well, they are radically transformed. And Gandhi actually understood this. He said that one of the biggest problems he had with Christianity was its superficiality, its conformity to the values and standards of the world around us. He Gandhi famously famously said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They're not like your Christ. So what does real, what does authentic Christianity look like? Well, Jesus is here saying, this is what the heart, mind, outlook, and values of a true Christian is. So if you're here and you're, you're curious and you're skeptical and you're watching and you're asking the question, what is a authentic Christian? What is authentic Christianity? Study the Sermon on the Mount. We can't know everything about the Christian life from the Sermon on the Mount. We need the whole Bible for that. But it gives us a portrait, a snapshot of what the Christian life is and what a Christian community is to look like. And it looks different. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at these eight statements from Jesus, these blessed R's, which are called the Beatitudes. And these are statements that Jesus makes pronouncing blessing on people. Sometimes these have been translated as happy, like happy are the poor in spirit. But um, that's not a helpful translation because happy is something that you achieve. Happiness is a state that you, you, uh, you conjure up. It's something that you produce. Whereas blessing is a declaration over you to receive. And when Jesus blesses here, he's actually his, his blessing is a performative act. Um, the, his words actually make something happen. We see this. Uh, We see this in baseball when a when an umpire calls a strike or a ball that makes it a strike or a ball, or when a minister declares that someone is husband and wife, or when a judge declares someone guilty or innocent. The act itself, the speech act, is the thing that creates the reality. The same is true here. That when Jesus declares that this is what is blessed, he creates it, and we all have a longing to be blessed. Blessing is actually a technical term in the Bible, and it's related to God's covenant. In Genesis 12, we're introduced to a man named Abraham, and God speaks to Abraham. He interrupts the dead end of his life, and he speaks to him, and he tells him that he will be blessed in order to be a blessing to the world. And then in the next book of the Bible, in Exodus, we have the story of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And as he leads them out of Egypt and out of slavery into the wilderness, um, under Moses' leadership, he comes to them at Mount Sinai and he gives to them his covenant. And in the covenant, which he gives to them, it has both blessings and curses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, and the blessing that he gives is his presence. It's to enjoy a relationship with God. And the curse is the removal of that covenant relationship. And this, this longing for blessing is something that all of us feel. We long for approval, validation, favor. We, we, we long for this from the people whom we love and respect. And if God really exists, there could be no greater blessing or favor than from God himself. See, we all have this longing for blessing or approval or favor from God. And either we don't recognize that blessing for what it is, or we end up looking for it in all the wrong places. A great example of this is Michael Jackson, who um, I have nothing but love and respect for Michael Jackson. But the story of his life and death is, is nothing but tragic and sad. About four days after he died, Patrick Goldstein, who's a writer for the LA Times, wrote an article, and in it he said this. He said, whether Michael Jackson died of heart disease or a cocktail of potent prescription drugs or just years of indulgence in excess, one verdict is inescapable. What really killed Michael Jackson was an overdose of showbiz values. For Jackson, like so many child stars, show business was his safe haven, the place that shaped his hopes and his dreams, only to drag him into a hellish black hole of unquenchable ego gratification, anxiety, vanity, arrested development, strains, obsessions, and rampant insecurity. It happens every day. Just look at how oh so many Hollywood types measure their self-worth by their weekend grosses how much money they make. But it's always worst when you find yourself on the cover of Rolling Stone when you're 10 years old. Although his fa- father ruled the family with an iron fist, from the time that Michael was six, he was the acknowledged star of his family's burgeoning music empire, displaying the kind of exhilarating stage persona that helped make the Jackson 5 Motown's last great crossover music act. He was, like so many child stars, robbed of any real childhood. He had no friends, only handlers. His only validation was the applause and the acclaim. And that's the problem with child stardom. Too often, your only fundamental values are showbiz values. The smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd, and the amount of zeros and the grosses. When your life is defined by showbiz success, you develop a huge hole in your soul, a hole that often gets filled with drugs, booze, or other self-destructive behavior. Jackson himself said um, in a taped interview with a rabbi, he said this. He said, God knows I'm telling the truth. All my success and fame, I wanted it. I really wanted it. But all of my success and fame was because I wanted to be loved. And that is all. He might not have recognized it, but he was longing for blessing. And often in smaller degrees, we do this too. This overdose of showbiz values, the values of the world, they don't lead to blessing, but they lead to curse. So what are the values and characteristics? What is the lifestyle that actually leads to blessing and not to curse, not to the curse? And that's what Jesus shows us here, the blessing rather than the curse of the covenant. And what's happening in these Beatitudes is he's describing all Christians in terms of these values and characteristics. He's painting a portrait for us of the authentic Christian life. And these are meant to apply to every Christian, meaning that they're not for us to pick and choose between. We can't say, oh, I'm a poor in spirit Christian. I'm not a meek Christian. Or we can't say, I'm not really into mourning um, or being pure in heart. Like We can't pick and choose these. A Christian is somebody whose life has been transformed by the power of the kingdom of grace, and therefore he is one who receives or she is one who receives the blessing. So we're going to take the first four tonight, and we're going to address the second four next week. The first four of these are who we are in our relationship with God, and the second four are our response to God's grace. So tonight we're going to look at these first four and see how they can become ours. So first, a Christian is someone who is poor in spirit. And poor is a technical term for those who in distress put their hope in God as the one who would rescue them. Now Jesus is not saying that poverty in of itself is a blessing. He's not saying that we should aspire to be material materially poor but it is true that those who are materially impoverished more readily recognize their spiritual poverty and put their full trust in god but here's what this does mean in relation to god being poor in spirit means that we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before god the hymn rock of ages says nothing in my hand i bring only to thy cross i cling and this is the fundamental posture of a christian Someone who knows and recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy before God. And if you understand this, you understand all of the Beatitudes. In many ways, this is the headwater. All of the others flow out of this one. And this is so challenging for us because our world celebrates wealth. The college admissions process celebrates wealth. Think about what got you to wake. You have a wealth of intellect. You have impressive extracurriculars. Or you have a wealthy family in a resource-rich school that prepared you for college. And the world doesn't just reward the resource and materially rich, but it also rewards the spiritually rich. The world says to us, blessed are the rich in spirit. So what does it mean to be spiritually rich? Well, think about the words that you use to describe your life, whether or not you use these out loud. But think about the words you use to describe your life. Do you use words like awesome or epic Amazing, self-confident, strong Christian, very religious, on top, winning, crushing it. Or do you use words and phrases like bankrupt, poor, empty, needy, and helpless? Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to those who come to him in that posture. Like I said last week, you don't fall into God's grace, you fail into God's grace. Christians are those who come empty-handed to God. Jesus blesses people not because of their virtues, but because of their inadequacies. He doesn't bless you because of your wealth, but because of your poverty. So second, he says, blessed are, the mourn, are those who mourn. And you could almost translate this, happy are the unhappy, to draw attention to the paradox here. So we've got to ask, what kind of sadness could it be that when you feel it, it brings you the joy of Christ's blessing? And from the context of the other Beatitudes, we can see that Jesus is saying that his comfort comes to those who mourn the reality of sin, their own sin and the sin that they see in the world. Jesus is pronouncing blessing on those who mourn the loss of their innocence, who mourn the loss of their righteousness, who mourn the loss of their self-respect, And those who mourn the reign of sin and death in the world. And this is in stark contrast to the world's beatitude of blessed are those who have no regrets. So question for you. What do you do with the mistakes that you've made? What do you do with what's been done to you and what you've done? What do you do with what happened this past weekend or last month or last year? And not to mention just your own sin, but what do you do with the gross injustice that we see not only in our own country, but all over the world? And the reality of the sadness of sin is like black ice. So think about when you're driving and you hit a patch of black ice. The untrained response is to turn away from the way that you're spinning. But that will always result in your car spinning out of control. But if you turn your wheels in the direction that you're spinning... The car will regain regain traction and you can safely maneuver out of danger. And the same is is true about the reality of the sadness of sin. When you feel that sadness coming on and you turn into it and you bring it before God, he promises that he will comfort you. When you turn your car into the black ice of the sadness over sin, Jesus promises that he will comfort you. Third, he says, blessed are the meek. And meek is a word that we don't use very often. Um, but it is the quality of not being overly impressed with yourself. Meekness is a humble and gentle attitude towards others, which comes from a right view of ourselves. Now, it's pretty easy for us to be honest with ourselves before God and acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in his sight. But it is so much more difficult to let others tell me the truth about my sin. Right? We instinctively resist this. All of us prefer to condemn ourselves rather than allow anyone else to condemn us, right? I can critique myself all day long, but the second that someone says, can I give you some feedback, like I either want to run and hide or punch them in the face. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a 20th century British preacher, he sums this up by saying this, he says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The person who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This makes him humble, gentle, sensitive, and patient in all his dealings with others. So a question for you is, are you meek? Do you have gentleness, humility, sensitivity, patience in your dealings with others? And if this isn't true with you, if you don't know this about yourself, ask somebody that you trust. If you have those things. And if you don't, are you overly impressed with yourself? And look at the promise connected to meekness. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I think we're fearful of meekness because we assume that meek people get nowhere because everyone ignores them or tramples them underfoot. Only the strong survive. In the words of Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last. But the way we enter into the blessings of Christ is not by finishing first, but by coming in last. And finally, Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness in the Bible has at least three aspects, and it's helpful for us to think of it in relationships. Righteousness from God to us, righteousness from us to God, and righteousness from us to others. So first, righteousness from God to us. This is the righteousness that he imputes to us in Jesus Christ to make us right with him. This is justification. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve so that he can give us his righteousness before God. And the righteousness, righteousness from us to God, this is our response to God's grace. It's immoral righteousness. It's living in a way that pleases God. It's walking in the good works that he has prepared for us. And the righteousness from us to others is a social, a social righteousness. And it's concerned with freedom from oppression and civil rights and legal justice and integrity in business and honor within your family and household. And Jesus is saying that he blesses all those who are hungry for righteousness. All the righteousnesses. Every baby comes into the world hungry and thirsty. And we taste our way through the world. You can ask any parent who spends their, the, their children's toddler's ears fishing objects out of their kids' mouths. And because of the reality of sin, all of us have developed spiritual eating disorders. And Jesus is saying that our insatiable hunger, our persistent longing, our unquenchable thirst will only be satisfied fully and completely when it is aimed at the kingdom of God and its righteousness. That the life of blessing, the life that Michael Jackson longed for, the life that you and I long for, is not one that's achieved. You cannot earn it. It's only found when we receive it from God. And this is completely countercultural. Jesus is flipping the values of the world upside down. In his kingdom, God is bringing about a whole new world, and it looks upside down, but it's in fact right side up. And from an earthly standpoint, the wealthy and the powerful are the ones who are blessed. The religious person is blessed. The self-sufficient, the strong, the righteous ones are the ones who are blessed. And Jesus is showing us that those who are truly blessed are those who recognize their weakness, those who are dependent, and those who hunger and thirst for that which they don't have. See, Jesus is showing us that the life of blessing, the life that we all long for, is found when you come to him with open hands, clinging only to his cross. When you turn your car into this black ice of your sadness over sin. And when you let your spiritual poverty and sadness lead you to an honest self-assessment of who you are before God and others. And then when you salivate after the kingdom of God and its righteousness. This is the key to unlock what it means to be a Christian. So how do we receive these blessings? How do they become ours? Let me tell you a story. In the book of Genesis, we are introduced to a man named Jacob. And Jacob was a liar and a cheat. And he was the second son of Isaac. And one day, Esau, who was the first son of Isaac, went out hunting. And he came back and he was famished after hunting. And Jacob had stayed home and he was cooking soup in the house. And Jacob convinced Esau to trade his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And then on his father's deathbed... Jacob dressed up like Esau and took advantage of his blind father and stole Esau's blessing. Now, Esau's blessing was his inheritance. As the firstborn, he would have received the large portion of his father's wealth. Jacob stole this and then ran away. Ran away from Esau and his father-in-law because he was a cheat. And he was terrified of meeting with Esau. And then the night before he's supposed to meet with Esau, Jacob wrestles with God. And at the end of his wrestling match, Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob was after the blessing of God. And how does God respond? He asks Jacob a question. He says, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And Jacob's name means liar, cheat, swindler. See, he recognizes himself for who he is. And God says, now, finally, you've recognized yourself for who you are. I will change your name. Because you've recognized yourself for who you are, I will make you the father of Israel. So, how is this possible? How can Jacob get the blessing and not the curse for being a, a swindler and a cheat and a liar? How is it that Jesus can offer us the blessing that we come to him with our poverty and our weakness and our sadness and our hunger and thirst? And the reason that Jesus can do this, the reason that Jacob received the blessing, the reason that you and I can receive the blessing is because Jesus received the curse in our place. This is what the cross is all about. In the book of Galatians, we're told that cursed is the man who hung upon the tree. And it says that Jesus is the one who is cursed in our place. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus stood in your place. He received the curse that you deserve so that he might give you the blessing of God that he longs to bless you with. This is the good news of what he's done for you. See, it's only as we recognize our spiritual brokenness we, and we see our need that we can see the kingdom. And then we're enabled to be satisfied with God's righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we all long for the blessing. Um, Lord, we long to be known and loved, to receive the blessing from you, whether we acknowledge it or not. And Lord, we, um, we ask for your help. Lord, thanks for these friends who are watching along. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us come to you with open hands. Teach us to be sad over our sin. Teach us, make us humble. Would you retrain our appetites because we hunger and thirst after the wrong things. And Lord, we pray for our campus. Father, would you cause us to come under your gracious rule so that our classmates and professors might see the beauty of your blessing, might see the majesty of your kingdom, so that you might receive glory. Lord, um, we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done at Wake Forest as it is in heaven. Amen. Friends, thanks for for joining us tonight. Uh, We have a good God in heaven who is on his throne and he reigns over us in love. Hear this word from his throne. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Have a great week.